Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. When China joined the WTO, I think there was a view that over time they would become more like us. I think the reality is we have become more like them. Hello, Stephanomics here, the podcast that brings you the global economy. And that was Michael Froman, former United States trade representative under President Obama and a senior treasury official in the early 2000s. Back then, policymakers in Washington tended to assume China would keep moving in the direction of freer markets, more open trade. It didn't. Well, not really. Instead, What we've seen is first President Trump and now President Biden intervening more in the US economy and putting more constraints on global trade. A speech a few weeks ago at the Brookings Institution, a US think tank, by National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan crystallised for me the different philosophy now underpinning US economic policy at home and abroad. Much of the international economic policy of the last few decades had relied upon the premise that economic integration would make nations more responsible and open, and that the global order would be more peaceful and cooperative. That bringing countries into the rules-based order would incentivize them to adhere to its rules. It didn't turn out that way. In some cases it did, in a lot of cases it did not. No one, certainly not me, is discounting the power of markets. But in the name of oversimplified market efficiency, entire supply chains of strategic goods, along with the industries and jobs that made them, moved overseas. And the postulate that deep trade liberalization would help America export goods, not jobs and capacity, was a promise made but not kept. Well, Sullivan says a lot more in that speech. She also talks about a foreign policy for the middle class. But what I found maybe more striking than the content was just how many different people seem to have noticed it. In the two weeks after it was delivered, a Scottish trade unionist, a London investment fund manager and a colleague in Singapore all spontaneously mentioned it to me and my sister. That doesn't happen very often. So I was interested in what Mike Froman thought of it whether he was worried about where all this talk of decoupling in the global economy, active trade and industrial policies might lead. Our conversation you'll hear in a little bit, but we're not all talk on Stephanomics, so no, we go out to see for ourselves. Or at least my hardworking Bloomberg colleagues do. In this case, our economic statecraft expert, Brendan Murray, went to Tangier. Because if the world is decoupling... If globalisation really is going into reverse, someone forgot to tell the Moroccans. The first thing you notice inside the Renault factory, where some of Europe's most popular car models are built, is the noise. The buzzing of pneumatic drills, the stamping of sheet metal, the constant humming of conveyor belts. Then you notice the hundreds of young women and men operating the machines. 
This production line assembles more than a thousand cars a day. About 8,000 people work in the sprawling facility. It's in a region of Morocco, about 90 minutes south of Spain, by ferry. It's all part of the French automaker's strategy to develop a local auto industry with global reach from this northwestern corner of Africa. Renault communications manager Lamia Bourdain takes me on a tour. We are in the assembly department where we assemble more than 1,400 pieces for each car. The Renault plant has two production lines, each running six days a week to meet demand. So all the, the sites can produce 60, 60 cars per hour. 60, and, yeah. yeah. But globalization is under threat. Here's U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen speaking at an event held by the Atlantic Council, where she introduced the idea of friendshoring, where rivals like the U.S. and China try to find more reliable trading partners. So let's build on and deepen economic integration and the efficiencies it brings on terms that work better for American workers. And let's do it with the countries we know we can count on. Favoring the friendshoring of supply chains to a large number of trusted countries. So I wondered, how does this nation of 37 million people feel about its future after spending so much time and so much money becoming an international hub for trade and manufacturing? I spent a few days touring the Tangier region. That's where much of the government's efforts are concentrated. What I found was international commerce forging ahead, an oasis from the protectionism, the geopolitical rivalries, and none of the talk of unraveling a world stitched together by trade. So as I said, we're pretty um, diverse. First, I went to an American company called Poly Design Systems. It's an auto supplier that produces parts like sun visors, headrests, and center consoles in the Tangier Free Zone. The general manager, Julianne Furman, showed me around. It's really a bustling place. <laughs> yeah, it is. As we toured Furman's facility, which has grown from 50 employees 20 years ago to 1,600 today, it was hard to fathom untangling the company's global interconnectedness. Moroccan workers here are operating Swiss or German or Italian-built machines. Some newly stitched steering wheels were being shipped off to Portugal. Other parts were headed to Morocco-based customers like Stellantis or Renault, or further afield to Jaguar Range Rover or Volvo. All told, the company's reach extends to 26 countries. In her office, Furman described an environment in Morocco where Chinese companies, Indian companies, and even Russian businesses operate alongside their European and American rivals, oblivious to the friendshoring talk from politicians in Washington or Brussels. But, I mean, you don't have any of this type of political discussion or tension. Um, but we're all kind of just doing our business and shipping, shipping our parts, you know? Um. To attract foreign investment, Morocco has several enterprise zones within an hour's drive from the northern city of Tangier that offer incentives for foreign investors like tax breaks, construction deals, and streamlined paperwork. In one of these zones, called Tangier Automotive City, tractor trailers are everywhere, shuttling loads between companies like Michigan-based Lear Corporation, Chinese cable producer ZTT, and car component makers from Italy, India, Germany, Japan, and Spain. I spoke with Ahmed Benes, who oversees the Tangier Med Zones. Tangier Med Zones started its activity in 2000, mm. and, uh, and uh, we 
hosts today more than 1,200 multinational companies in a total footprint of 5,000 hectares that has been dedicated to the development of these special economic zones and those industrial facilities. 2,500 hectares have been already developed. Uh, the, the, the remaining footprints are under development and uh, will be developed in the next five, five to ten years. None of Morocco's industrial development would be possible without the expansion of its biggest container port called Tangier Med. It's become one of the world's most connected gateways for global markets and ranks fourth overall in the World Bank's Port Performance Index, well ahead of even Singapore or Hong Kong. The Danish shipping line Maersk has invested more than a billion euros in its terminals. So I spoke with the CEO of the Tangier Med Special Agency, Meditazi. He oversees the region and explained to me how the whole ecosystem aims to boost the nation's economy with foreign capital and ultimately good-paying jobs. 50% of the entire Moroccan import-export flows through the Tangier port. Mm -hmm. That's on the port side. Now on the industrial cluster uh, platform, uh, obviously the, the, uh, the direct impacts on the Moroccan economy are the contribution to GDP and jobs. We have, we have notched up 19,000 jobs and that by itself is of course a breakthrough. Sure, it's in industry, it's not in service, it's not in tourism. Mm. This is pure industry. Along with success have come strains on one of Morocco's biggest resources and selling points, a young and eager workforce. In Morocco, the average age is 29 years old. That's on par with Mexico and India. But in Japan and Germany, it's in the high 40s. In Eastern Europe, the average age is in the low 40s, and in the U.S. it's 39. Even with all the industry jobs, youth unemployment hovers around 25%, according to the World Bank, and the jobless rate countrywide was almost 13% in the first quarter. Morocco's public transportation also needs help. Each day at Renault, for example, some 150 packed shuttle buses bring workers to and from their shifts at the assembly plant, adding traffic on the roads, pollution in the air, and round-trip commutes of two hours each day for many of them. So more affordable housing is needed near the industrial zones. The economy could benefit, too, from more women participating in the labor force. Here's World Bank economist Federica Marceau. Uh, clearly, you know, the, the short answer to your question is like, no, currently the labor market doesn't seem in great shape to pick up this challenge. Uh, it is one of the priorities in the new development model. Uh, and so the government is trying to sort of to solve the puzzle in a sense. Companies in Morocco also need help shifting away from fossil fuels for their energy needs or risk losing business to jurisdictions that can do it faster. Here's Julianne Furman again from Poly Design. I think uh, on that note, there needs to be movement and very, very quickly. Um, it, it should be feasible. Um, you, you probably see all the press information on renewable energies, whether it's solar, wind, or uh, green hydrogen. Um, but I think um, we need to move much more quickly or we're going to lose our competitiveness. From Polydesign's standpoint, um, it's something that I want to use as a competitive advantage against our competitors. Mm -hmm. um, but it's going to be difficult because our competitors are in Europe, mostly Eastern Europe. They receive um, help and financing from the European organizations, um, and, and they're moving very quickly, and it could very easily freeze out Morocco. Mm -hmm. 
Um, After a few days traveling around Tangier Med, a couple of things were clear. Morocco's fast growth has stretched the local workforce, and businesses need more tools to adapt to climate change. But it's also a place where U.S., Chinese, Spanish, or Indian companies are coexisting, competing, and even collaborating. Here in Morocco, they haven't turned inward like many other countries have when it comes to trade, but are banking on globalization to thrive into the future, so their economy can too. From northern Morocco, I'm Brendan Murray for Bloomberg. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. News. Now, I'm very pleased to talk about some of these shifting currents for global trade and economic policy that Brendan mentioned there with someone who's witnessed close hand the machinations of international economic policy in his various incarnations, Michael Froman. We both worked together, as it happens, in the Clinton Treasury a long time ago in the late 1990s. Then I slunk back to journalism, but he went on to be Deputy National Security Advisor and then US Trade Representative under President Obama. He's been, until very recently, a Vice Chairman at MasterCard, but in a few weeks he will be taking over what I think one would say was America's most illustrious foreign policy think tank, the Council on Foreign Relations. Mike, thanks very much for doing this. I don't have to quite call you Mr. President yet. (laughs) Thanks for having me. It's good to see you. Um, We've got lots to talk about, but I wanted first to ask you about that speech that National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan made a few weeks ago uh, at the Brookings Institution in Washington. Um, it's, It's a speech that seems to have been heard around the world, or at least in some surprising corners of it. And I think that's perhaps because it seemed to capture quite how much has changed in US thinking about international economic policy since the years of President Clinton or Obama. So what did you think about it? 
Well, first of all, I thought it was uh, really a quite artful speech. And I think I agree with much of it. Uh, I think for those of us who've been involved in trade, we've often made the point that trade policy can't exist in a vacuum, that trade policy needs to be paired with robust domestic economic policy, because we all know that the benefits of trade are broadly shared, uh, but the the, the negative impact or the dislocations that come with trade or can come with trade are more acutely felt. And one of the challenges in the United States has been that we've rarely had the consensus necessary to pair trade policy with some sort of meaningful domestic policy to address those challenges. I think what uh, the National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan did was lay out the Biden doctrine on this issue, which is that very much we have to focus initially on investing in our own country, making sure that, that we are, in this case, using industrial policy and innovation to help drive leadership in key technologies, help continue to support uh, good middle-class jobs, manufacturing jobs, and not be focused on, uh, he, he somewhat characterizes trade policy as being only about tariffs, but not, not be focused solely on tariff reduction as the be-all and end-all. And that I, I, I entirely agree with. Um, I think it does show an evolution, particularly with regard to how we're thinking about domestic policy in the United States. Industrial policy has never been, has, has, has not been popular until recently in the United States. Uh, we've not had great experience with it in the past, but what's been going on between the infrastructure bill, the CHIPS Act, uh, and the IRA with regard to clean energy um, uh, technologies, I think is a fundamental shift. And we're seeing some quite significant progress uh, early days still in those areas. And I think that's an important pillar of being able to also engage in international economic policy. Well, it's interesting. And you, you mentioned at the start the sort of the the fact that trade policy you couldn't exist sort of in a, in a vacuum. And, and there's a very striking phrase in the speech, which is, you know, the postulate that deep trade liberalisation would help America export goods, not jobs and capacity, was a promise made and not kept. I mean, that's quite an indictment. That's saying, you know, the, the, the promise that was made to people in signing up to this, these trade deals was just not kept. So, I, look, I think there's always the risk that trade deals are oversold. I'm not sure I agree completely with that uh, assessment. The U.S. has relatively low tariffs. It's an average tariff of about 2.4%, so much lower than the global average, much lower than most of our trading partners, which means when we engage in a trade negotiation, they are reducing tariffs far more than we are, which at least theoretically should help us promote our exports to that country. It's reducing a barrier. They already have, effectively, they already have access to our market and we are now getting access to their market. And the fact that our exports continue to grow, both in services and in goods, I think is, is, a, is a testament uh, uh, to that. What Jake also refers to as the China shock in the paper and the impact that the China shock had on, um, on, on the United States manufacturing sector, that wasn't the result of some FTA. We weren't giving China preferred access to our market. Uh, it was the fact that they were a low cost producer that American companies decided to move their production there in the in the uh, in the late uh, 1990s and early 2000s. Um, and that had a very significant impact on on the U.S. manufacturing center. That cannot be denied. But that's an, that's a separate issue from trade liberalization or FTAs, per se. 
And I guess we should talk about that sort of broader uh, premise underlying a lot of the international economic policy, certainly in the Clinton White House and to some extent Obama uh, as well. Jake Sullivan refers to it. He says, much of the international economic policy of the last few decades had relied upon the premise that economic integration would make nations more responsible and open and the global order would be more peaceful and cooperative. Bringing countries into the rule-based order would incentivize them to adhere to its rules. It didn't turn out that way. There was this basic view that bringing the world closer together, having closer economic integration would sort of make countries better. And that's turned out to be wrong. Do you agree that that's turned out to be a mistake? I think it's hard to argue the the counterfactual um, here because um, certainly as more, let's leave China to the side for one moment, we'll come back to it. But if we look at the rest of the world, as they became integrated with the open, they opened up, they became integrated with each other regionally. Um, they became integrated with the global trading system. Um, most countries adhere to most rules most of the time. Uh, it's, it's never a perfect record, but I think we've seen in general a relatively robust rules-based trading system. Now, China was a, China is a different case because it did come in under the rules of the WTO at the time. And frankly, the, the, the rules that were negotiated at the Uruguay round on state-owned enterprises, on subsidies, on non-market economies, um, did not fully take into account the nature of the challenge that China would end up posing to the global trading system. And when people talk about multilateral trade reform or WTO reform, these are the issues that need to be looked at because clearly the multilateral system was, was not up to uh, the the bar that it needed to be to deal with the challenge that, that China posed, an economy that big, that integrated with the rest of the world, operating in, in some respects on a very different set of, of rules and business models. And uh, that has been uh, that has been the challenge. But to say that all of that, you know, that, that, that the rules-based system never really worked, I think that is probably an overstatement. And what we don't know, even with regard to China, is if they had not been part of the global trading system, what kinds of policies would they have pursued? Would it think they have been more protectionist? Now, I was struck at one point, Stephanie, as you may recall, I was the G20 Sherpa. And I remember various G20 summits. And each G20 summit, this is right after the financial crisis, there was a statement in the communique that said, we stand against trade protectionism and we'll roll it back where it exists. The G20 is not a legal institution. There's no... Uh, implication, no ramifications if you violate a statement in a in a leader's communique from the, from the G20. And yet, I remember summits where leaders fought to the end on that point because they did not want to be criticized for taking protectionist measures. So the rules-based system does have this effect, uh, whether it's fully enforceable in the way that we like it or not, on constraining government behavior and um, again, we, without it, we don't know how much worse things would have been. OK, but just to take that point, because it feels like it isn't just China. There's a lot of countries that have ended up kind of rejecting some of the models represented by the G20, whether it's Russia or the UAE or even India on occasions, you know, have, have wanted to go their own way. And I guess, you know, when you think about those discussions um, in the G20, the G20 itself was based on an idea that you could separate, you could have kind of very different political values sitting around the table, very different political systems. You could part that outside the door and still have 
a useful conversation and a useful goal of moving towards economic rules and you know you could move the economy for move economic policy forward and kind of park the politics outside the door just doesn't feel like that if it was ever possible doesn't feel like that's possible now and certainly even the g20 can't agree on anything as long as russia's invaded ukraine well look i think the g20 was at its best um in that period of 08 09 2010 in dealing with the global financial crisis and to your point, countries were able to park their politics on the outside and cooperate with each other to deal with a global crisis. As the agenda of the G20 evolved over time, it was never meant to be a foreign policy uh, forum um, and to deal with issues like uh, war and peace in, in Ukraine um, uh, and even the you know, even even some of the other economic issues where we did not have consensus, including with China over the WTO or over global rules, it, it does certainly have its limitations. Um, and I think that's why countries have opted for pursuing coalitions of the willing, coalitions of the ambitious, regional agreements, sectoral agreements, uh, friend shoring, near shoring. They've, they've sort of pursued things outside the WTO, outside those frameworks, uh, because those other frameworks have proven to be somewhat limited in their capacity to to really develop a meaningful consensus. One more thing going back to the speech, and then I just want to uh, have a couple of questions about the future. I mean, Frank Four, who has written quite sort of elegantly about it in The Atlantic, he said the Biden administration is doing nothing less than rejecting the economic orthodoxy of the past 50 years and proposing a new theory of capitalism. Do you think that's right? Even allowing for a little bit of journalistic embellishment? (laughs) I I Look, I think that goes a bit far. If you look at what... uh, uh, what the administration is doing, for example, on the Indo-Pacific economic framework. Um, they are taking a, a series of issues that are, are meaningful. They're significant issues, things around supply chains, things around digital trade, um, and working with other countries. I think they've got 14 other countries there, or 15 other countries now around the table to try and come up with rules. I, you know, I, I, think, I think Jake is right in his speech that Oftentimes, too much attention is paid to tariffs as the be-all and end-all of trade policy. Uh, but that, you know, that, that was also a little bit of a caricature. If you notice in his speech, he talks about the 1990s, and then he talks about the 2020s. There's conveniently a 20-year gap. It's, it's like the gap in the... During which time you were in charge of trade policy. For- I'm just saying, it was the Bush administration and uh, and the Obama administration, it was it was 2007 when... Sandy Levin and the House Democrats negotiated with the Bush administration a series of agreements about how labor and environment should be included in in trade agreements. And certainly the trade agreements that we pursued during the Obama administration, whether it was finalizing Korea, Colombia uh, and um, uh, Panama or TPP or TTIP, they were not fundamentally or only about tariffs. They were about rules on labor, on environment, um, on standards, on new issues like digital economy. And so I, I think there's been an evolution in how people think about this. Um, it's the tariff reduction that gets the most attention and it's the most sensitive because it affects goods and therefore manufacturing, uh, as well as, of course, agriculture. Um, but it, it, the trade agreements for some time have been broader. And in fact, I think our approach has been quite explicitly to use trade and trade agreements to get other things done, use the power of market access 
to get countries to raise their labor standards or use the power of, of tariffs to enforce environmental agreements that were not otherwise enforceable, like the, the Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species. So I think, I think the trading system has gone through a, a bit of an evolution. I think it went further during the Trump administration when it came to labor rights enforcement, and we see that with Mexico, and I think that's been a healthy step in that direction. I think the question for the Biden administration, and to go to Frank Ford's um, argument, is not so much is it a new theory of capitalism, um, but can we pursue a robust economic engagement and leadership agenda that doesn't have tariff reduction at its core? And I think the answer is potentially yes. It just means you need to flesh out the rest of the tree there and make sure that there are things that help bring the, the countries to the table. And at a time, particularly in the Asia Pacific, when there's a desire by our allies and our partners that the U.S. be engaged, shows leadership, there's a desire to have that opportunity to work with the U.S. on issues as a counterbalance to what China's natural um, uh, dominance in that region. And so that's, I think, the, 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 great, uh, the great challenge and the great opportunity for the Biden administration. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. So if you're U.S. Trade Representative now, what is your job? I mean, you're not doing, you know, President Biden has, has suggested anyway that free trade agreements are, are not really, you know, they're a kind of old fashioned tool, I think he said. We certainly don't have a great lot of energy around the World Trading or WTO, World Trade Organization anymore. So what's your job now if you're USTR? I think you work quite innovatively with uh, like-minded countries and like-minded broadly defined. We don't have to agree on everything. It doesn't all have to be democracies. I mean, there can be a, a wide range of, of countries, I think, inside the tent, you know, on concrete ways to address common international economic issues. So supply chain resilience, 
um, uh, making sure that there's redundancy and diversification and security in our in our supply chains, um, access to critical minerals and uh, critical materials, cooperation in R&D around the most important technologies, uh, rules around the digital economy. We're all, every country's wrestling with this. The most recent issue being AI, but even before, you know, chat GPT um, hit, hit our screens, we were dealing with issues around data and how should data be protected and treated and privacy issues, data localization requirements. How, what kind of effect does that have on the business models? How do countries and governments benefit? Uh, how do individuals benefit? So lots and lots of issues like that, that um, governments really do need to work together on. Otherwise, we're going to have really a balkanization of rules. I was going to ask you, what you thought the risks were. If you have this kind of robust approach to industrial policy and a slightly more nuanced approach to international trade policy, you know, what are the risks? I mean, I get, one I wonder about is just the number of politicians now all around the world thinking, great, I'm allowed to get my hands on, on all the strategic industries. I can just say it's just, I'm doing industrial policy just like the Biden, Biden administration. Well, there is a, a bit of an irony here that, that when... China joined the WTO, I think there was a view that over time they would become more like us. <laughs> and I think the reality is we have become more like them. And so we're now following their lead on industrial policy, on protectionism, on a variety of, uh, uh, of, of measures, restraints on foreign investment and the like. That's just the reality, I think, of feeling as though since they weren't becoming more like us, that it was an unlevel playing field. And this is because we have very little control over what they do. We only have control over what we can do and that this is what uh, this is what we need to do. Look, today, uh, actually, the uh, uh, Council on Foreign Relations, uh, Foreign Affairs magazine uh, just published an article this morning by the director general of the WTO, uh, Ngozi uh, Okonjo-Wela, called Why the World Still Needs Trade. And I think the risk, you ask about the risk, I think the real risk is what she cites, which is that trade has been the driver of, of poverty alleviation for the last several decades, has helped lift, one of, the, one of the factors that has helped lift hundreds of millions, if not over a billion people out of abject poverty. And with this, we've seen tremendous progress, both on, on, on abject poverty, but also on all sorts of other human development indicators because of of growth and uh, growth needs to be more inclusive. We need to make sure that people are benefiting from it uh, broadly. But we've seen backsliding uh, with the pandemic, uh, with uh, countries pulling apart. I think the biggest risk going forward is that, in fact, uh, trade does not contribute as much to that kind of positive economic development and that we see more, more people falling into, into poverty. And do you think countries like Morocco will ultimately have to pick sides? You know, I, I, uh, I, don't, th I don't think so. I mean, I think, um, I, I think the, the issue of decoupling and, and pulling apart to two great blocks, I think that's, again, a bit overstated. I think we're going to find where there's de-risking or even a bit of decoupling. It's over a very limited set of technologies, um, not broadly. We're, we're trading more. The U.S. and China are trading more. Jake says this in his speech. We're trading more with each other now than we ever have. You know, despite the protectionism, despite the tariffs, despite the tensions in the relationship, our bilateral relationship is, is economic relationship is deeper and broader than it than it's ever uh, been. And so, 
I, I don't think countries like Morocco are going to have to pick size one or the other, um, uh, with the exception of some very discreet technologies, whether it's in the telecom area or the semiconductors or um, you know, maybe in some of the, the, uh, the, the, the clean energy technologies. And um, you know, I think we need to make it attractive for, for them to, to pick our side. I think one of the challenges we have is the, in Washington right now, there is a robust bipartisan consensus on the nature of the China problem. Uh, there is less serious thought and consensus going into where do we want this relationship to go in the future? What is the new equilibrium that we want to establish with China? And that's important, not just so that we know where we're going ourselves, but I think in our conversations with Europeans, with third countries, they they don't want to be put in this position of having to choose. And they understand and, and in many respects share our concerns about China but they haven't yet seen what our vision is for the future. And of course, the other question in their minds is who's going to win the next election? So what what in this this approach that we've talked about for the last 20 minutes or so changes if there's a Republican president from January 2025, stepping back from who it might be? I Look, I, I think one thing that the Biden administration has demonstrated is that um, there's a fair degree of continuity uh, between one administration and the next when it comes to the diagnosis of the of the problem um, and even some of the even some of the responses. So the Biden administration has embraced uh, the U.S. U.S. Mexico Canada uh, agreement and the labor provisions of that. Of course, I mean, it's a it's a it's a good agreement. Um, uh, I, my guess is a future administration would continue to embrace some of the industrial policy that the Biden administration has launched, the, inv- the investment in chips in infrastructure, uh, in electric vehicles, and the supply chain around electric vehicles. So I think there's just a lot of continuity at this point on these questions. Final question. In a couple of weeks' time, you're going to be, or a few weeks' time, you're going to be taking over the reins at this, as I said, very illustrious institution. I think in some ways, one might think what the Council on Foreign Relations is most focused on is what the sort of at least the elite global conversation is going to be about in the next few years. Where do you think where do you think you're going to be putting more resources and and sending more people to think about at the council? Well, look, I think uh, we've got the return of of geopolitics and and war um, in Europe, which of course um, uh, has to be a, a major focus. We've got the rise of China and the whole management of strategic competition. I think that's an area that will need a lot of focus. And then I think um, the, the whole area around technology and foreign policy, technology and national security, I think we're just beginning to scratch the surface in terms of what impact AI, quantum computing, synthetic biology, other you know, new innovations in the technology and science area are having or could have on international relations, on global governance and the like. So if you're good on those things, get your resumes into the Council on Foreign Relations in the next few weeks. Michael Freeman, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for this episode of Stephanomics. Next week, we'll have more. But in the meantime, you can get all your economic insight and news from the Bloomberg Terminal website or app. This episode was produced by Magnus Henriksen, Yang Yang and Sama Sadi, with help from Moses Andam. Special thanks to Brendan Murray and Michael Froman. 
The executive producer of Stephanomics is Molly Smith and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Sage Bowman. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.